grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Joe here. In the last episode, I interviewed Gary Clapton about his personal story as a father who lost a daughter to adoption in 1970. And today we're going to talk about his professional work in relation to adoption and birth fathers. In addition to his lived experience, Gary is a social worker who for many years has conducted research in relation to adoption policy and practice in his role as a reader at University of Edinburgh. Gary is also a committee member of the Fathers Network Scotland and is an advisor to Birthlink. Welcome back to the podcast, Gary. Very pleased to be back, Joe. Very pleased to be back, right? Thank you very much for inviting me. It's good to have you. Gary, I know that you've conducted research into what the fathering role can mean when a father's child is not physically present. Here in Australia, we just celebrated Father's Day, and this occasion can bring up many complex feelings, including loss for fathers, adopted people, and other family members. So I thought it would be timely to ask you to share your findings on this topic with us. Thanks very much, Joe, and I'll do my best because um, it's uh, there's, there's a lot of them. And, um, you know, we were chatting beforehand, before we started recording, about um, various bits and pieces, but... Um, so there's two things. I kind of I went and looked at my book again, and uh, I had we think about it, and um, it kind of like merges with some of my professional work with birth fathers in an organisation called Birthlink in Scotland, but also my subsequent academic researches. So there's a few things overlaid this, and I hope I get the book, <laughs> the book's contents right, <laughs> or I remember them. But but the two. <laughs> Two main points I would say, and I would begin with a sort of like a phrase that came to my mind about the long reach of relinquishment. It has a long reach. I think I use the word shadow, uh, or another people have used shadow, um, but I think that relinquishment has a long reach in the lives of, of um, fathers. And the fathers I spoke to and have spoke to since I backed that up. And there's two aspects to that. One is the kind of material consequences. We know from some of the research before mine, but also my research, that a number of fathers didn't go on to have any more children. A number of fathers um, had no fathering role again, or they may have kind of fathered at something of a distance, maybe stepfathers, but you know, fathering for them, the fathering role was kind of somewhat either diverted or suppressed. And yet the feelings continued, but were unrequited for the kind of non-fathers, the fathers that remained um, uh, without any further children and so on. And those kind of feelings, I thought, that kind of um, unrequitedness, whether they were fathers uh, with children or not, um, for fathers with children took the form of that 
you know, the dilemma over the kind of how many have you got in your family, that kind of, oh, it's a plus one I have, but you only share that with folks that uh, you kind of trust uh, mm-hmm. and you know and love. Either way, the child was kind of held in mind. And the other material consequences I found was um, things like choice of careers. I became a social worker. I think that, and also worked in children and families. Frankly, I think I was involved in chasing people up about adoption and having, uh, you know, asking them about relinquishment and so on. Maybe only one or two cases in London. People's choices of work to work with children and so on. I think the other things, uh, so choice of career, I think that sense of self as well, their opinion of themselves also mixed in a way. You know, how much of a, a good guy am I? What's my identity? There's a hidden part of it. I don't share with many people. It's 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 fathers. So that kind of leads me on to the second bit, which is the kind of inner lives of these birth fathers, even the men without contact. And some of these men in my study felt attached. You know, they maybe only seen the child, their child for an hour or two, or or perhaps have held them. And in one man's case, it was very poignant. Could still smell these babies' scent after thirty years. But these men spoke of. The, the child has been one of their family. I spoke of them being their father, not their dad. Many of them made, for me then, struggled with this kind of like, this this, this sense of identity, sense of a, a something out there. And I began to think more about, you know, um, ghosts. But I'll come back to that sometimes if we have a chance to. But I've started to do some reading about that. But anyway, my point here is that these were dads at a kind of a distance, both literally, but historically. And yet they grieved. Some of these dads, went through rituals on birthdays and on Christmas, the kind of things that birth mothers regularly do. What's the phrase? Kind of out of sight, but really, very rarely out of mind. So I'll stop there, right, because I could go into major lecture mode, Joe, so I won't try. Um, <laughs> I, I hope that's making some kind of sense for you. Um, yeah, it really and does. And the, the, the last thing I would say was this the kind of relationship with other people. I said something about becoming fathers again, some maybe not becoming fathers again. Again, the, the child being in mind, held in mind, and whether you share that presence with somebody is that very often um, the men I spoke to, not all of them, and this is not for all birth fathers at all, but they would share it. It'd be the first thing they'd shared with some people that were close to people who became subsequent partners or, or, or wives. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit um, <clears throat> heartbreaking when you said that a father could smell his baby's scent like 30 years afterwards still, um, yeah, which is yeah. just something I've not heard said before, which is, yeah, it's pretty profound. Yeah. 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 And this was a working class guy I spoke to um, and um, he was kind of, I, I, a lot of these guys were kind of, there was a couple that basically said, I shot through, right? I did a runner. Um, and they, um, But um, that was like one or two of them out of the 30 I spoke to. You know, in my professional career, I've spoken to fathers who, you know, have demanded a DNA test, you know, or said, no, it wasn't me, governor. Um, and and then they kind of like after, you keep them on the line long enough, you know, they kind of start to sort of like, you know, melt around the edges. But um, <laughs> it's, it's certainly true. A lot of these men didn't do a runner, were, were there either. They were kind of banned from going into the, the hospital. Uh, they were just told not to, to make themselves scarce. Hmm. Or, um, or they maybe had a chance to see the baby for you know, like an hour or two or sort of like over the sort of like the, the lip of a, a crib or, or what have you. But these kind of emotions, those experiences, sorry, had formed emotions that stayed with them 
for the rest of their lives. This was something that, uh, you know, was a major milestone, an emotional milestone in their life. And like I say, the kind of long reach of relinquishment, sometimes it's a very short reach because some of the guys I spoke to, uh, again, this is backed up um, subsequently by my research, um, went off the rails. They kind of, they, 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 they did drugs. They kind of like, you know, played around. They, you know, they were bad to themselves. And most of them settled down again into sort of forms of life. But, you know, they, they kind of, they did see themselves as, you know, stamped by this kind of, um, this, 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 uh, you know, mark of uh, having relinquished a baby and what that meant for them. Yeah, it must have been so interesting because uh, I'm going to generalize here, but men don't often sit down and talk about their feelings, especially about deep pain and trauma. And um, having the opportunity to talk to someone like you must have been such an unpacking for them, like going somewhere they'd probably never gone that deep before. I know, I know. Sometimes it was hard work, I have to say, Joe. Right? Yeah. Sometimes you have to sort of have about a half an hour of banter right? <laughs> where you're shooting the breeze about this side and the next, saying, what was the football score? La, la, la. How's the weather outside? You know, when you think about it, I, I wrote to these, and this is the days when you wrote rather than emailed, I, I, I wrote to these guys. So they put their hand up and said, happy to see you. you know? So I, I would visit them, you know, and yeah. um. Uh, I, I, so they were ready, if you like, right, to sort of spill the beans, to spill their yeah. guts, and um, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of plain sailing. You know, sometimes you kind of back off a little bit. Sometimes one or two of them would have a sort of um, a partner in the background, kind of hovering. Is it going to be okay, right? You know, maybe there to hold his hand afterwards. And uh, so there's a bit of that kind of like um, ducking and diving and sort of like setting up the interview to sort of make it feel good. Sometimes, and you'll know if you're a social worker. It's listening to this maybe sometimes for one of the better word the juicy stuff right for the interview and if you're not if you're an academic you'll know what I mean but even if you're not the they kind of you know the, the the real kind of guts of the matter would only come out when I was leaving when I had my hand on the doorknob right I'm about yeah. to go you know and he's in full flight but yes you're right I, I think it's a kind of a misnomer, a stereotype to say that men don't do emotions. They do emotions. You see them at a football game or what have you, right? A cricket game if you're in Australia. And there's <laughs> lots of passion that's going on. But they do it in a kind of like a kind of an externalizing way. The emotions goes that way to the, the world, right? It, it, it's diff- more difficult doing it on a one-to-one basis. And what I found with them, um, I mean, I asked the guys, would they come to a group? Would they sit in a group? And, you know, the, most of them were saying, yeah, but I think they were just saying that. I think that men don't do groups in that sense. I don't think they do groups where you sit down and say, let's look at each other and talk about our feelings. Yes. <laughs> there's got this movement in the UK called Men's Sheds. Yes, we have that here can, too. Right, fine. Yeah. So you go to a shed and you build stuff or you or you, or you take it apart. And you're actually, it's like parallel play for men. You know, they sit, stand beside each other and they don't look at each other. But my goodness, to share stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I just need you know to I mean? bring a, a nail and a hammer into conversations with my husband. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> just use it carefully. Yeah. Gary, here in Australia, there is some contention around when the era of what we call forced adoption ended, or even yeah. if it has ended. However, just as in the UK, the peak era for adoptions here was the late 60s and early 70s. So... Yeah. Turning to the lived experiences of fathers, I understand that you've looked at some themes in relation to different fathers' experiences pre and post-1980 in, yep. in brackets with some reservations. So what can you tell us about what you found? Right, yeah, it's a good point you make, Joe, about um, 
you know, it's really hard to sort of put a kind of dividing line down these things. But I think that the the the, the chips do fall on either side of a broad sort of like line down the middle uh, towards the end of the 70s, uh, mid 80s. Babies just dried up. Adoption became much less a sort of like, um, you know, a, a, a service for couples that were infertile and a sort of a place to put the children of unmarried mothers. All of that went uh, uh, and, and just dwindled so that you can see it with the, um, the numbers on the, on the stats. So I think that's the dividing line we said, like, again, with reservations, pre-80s and post-1980s. And, you know, my expertise was in the pre-80s. The men who were involved in the teenagers, I must point out, many of them were sort of just teenage guys, um, young men, I should say. And I, that was where my expertise was. But I met a guy called John Clifton. And in fact, I was asked to do, um, to be his external assessor for his Viva. He was doing a PhD uh, down in Norwich. And his work, his work was all about um, the fathers, contemporary fathers, his children had been in state state care, social services. They'd been taken into care on child protection reasons. Interviewed, I don't know, maybe as I, I mean, maybe slightly more than 30, 40 or so um, of fathers. And I, right away, they kind of the language starts to change because these guys didn't call themselves birth fathers; they were fathers. So that the post nineteen eighty fathers that he interviewed weren't described as birth fathers. They the children had gone through adoption. Um, he had found that they kind of they divided into about three camps. The first was the fathers who were completely depressed about it and miserable and and um, and really didn't know what to do with their lives. You know, they were maybe self-harming and uh, drugs and what have you. There was a second lot who, um, well, they, they kind of like, they participated in the adoption processes that maybe were um, initially against it, but had come to realize it might be the best thing for their child. So they were kind of like going along with things like um, openness and contact and letterbox contact and so on. And then he had, again, pretty significant numbers, maybe a third again, um, but this is his next group, was uh, men who did not accept the adoption of their child. They were mad as hell, weren't going to take it, fought the adoption tooth and nail and continued to resist it. Uh, we're hoping to, against hope that come the day when their child was 16, 18, or what have you, um, that they, they would either get a chance to see them or their child would come looking for them. Some of these men were angry enough to sort of like, you know, issue threats to social service, but they were angry. This was a group of angry men. So we, we kind of had, I, I talk about his, 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 his birth fathers, so to speak, and my birth fathers, and, and, and wondered about the differences. Some of the differences were, were, were very clear. The birth fathers in my study um, were young men who had very, very little uh, contact with a child. The other study of contemporary birth fathers, these were men who had hands-on care of a child. Now, that care may have been suspect. The reasons why the kid came into care in the first place uh, may have been justified. But either way, these men had parented, for want of a better word sometimes, um, that had been involved in, in the upbringing of a child, perhaps three or four years or so. So huge difference between birth fathers of the 70s who had very little contact, if any, with the child that was relinquished. And these men whose kids had come out of their care, um, gone into social services care, state care, and um, had gone through a process of foster care, perhaps moving around in foster care, the usual stuff that happens in 
It's terrible. Uh, and then eventually I'd been adopted. And often the adoption was resisted tooth and nail. You know, they refused to give their, um, <clears throat> their consent. And the, um, the men in my group, well, they were never asked for their consent at all. So one similarity, uh, one, one thing we pointed out was that um, over the piece, over the 30 years or so, that the system had begun to sort of wake up to the fact that, you know, there was a, men were in the picture. And it's actually quite difficult to ignore, uh, uh, you know, a five-year-old child who's, you know, considered he's got a father out there um, rather than a, a baby who's six weeks old and can't express themselves. And, you know, these men had been sort of like left out of the picture right from the, the get-go. Whereas the contemporary birth fathers, the contemporary fathers, uh, you know, they had a connection with these children or the children had a connection with them. They knew what their father looked like. Even if he was a bad guy, they knew what he looked like. So it was quite difficult to, um, you know, exclude these fathers in, in, a, in a, any kind of um, discriminatory way. They had to be included, uh, for want of a better word. Um, so these were um, uh, some of the, um, the points we made. But we also found other points. I mean, the men and the contemporary birth fathers, well, they're mostly working class. That's what social services take to do with all the time. Mostly poor. My men, the men in my study, um, they were a mix. I interviewed a guy in an old people's home who'd been a, a kind of top civil servant. I interviewed lorry drivers, um, folk that were unemployed, GPs. My, my guys were a mix, a mix of classes, I suppose. Whereas mostly contemporary birth fathers are um, a kind of working class. And so I guess there's probably two more things uh, I wanted to say, Joe, without going on oh, too much, right? I hope it's okay. Am I? Yes, you know, please carry on. It's so interesting. My, my, whereas the birth fathers in my study felt um, <clears throat> a kind of, that they hadn't, they'd been excluded. Um, some of them felt, you know, you know, upset about that. Contemporary birth fathers who have their children removed from them and adopted are dealing with more, Acute emotions, I would say, I'm probably the wrong word, but they were they had shame. They felt shame. They, they, they felt that their their fathering had been compromised. They, they were fathers, and now they weren't fathers. Their fathering was deleted. They were obliterated as fathers. They had that removed from them. Whereas the men in my study, the birth fathers in my study, hadn't gone through that process of being a father, being a parent, being hands on, and having that removed from them. The men, the contemporary fathers, in um, uh, John Clifton's study um, had gone through a process of, um, um, first of all, um, <clears throat> being involved in child protection, uh, with all that, with all that comes with that, and had felt deep shame, and um, they consequently had no respect at all, uh, uh, you know, to say the least, for social services, the adoption sort of system, and all this. Had no respect for the courts social workers, individual social workers, um, the local authority, what have you. Whereas my men, um, if I can say that, my fathers had not really kind of, um, you know, gone through that kind of sort of up close and personal process. So let's broaden yeah. the discussion now to all parties affected by adoption. <clears throat> The outcomes of adoption reunions can vary greatly and it can be hard to find outcome studies that relate to adoption reunion, yet you've conducted such research. Can you tell us some of your key findings? Right, thanks very much. This is um, um, something I've done more, more recently than my book. The work I've done, again, I mentioned this organisation called Birthling. They uh, allowed me, they gave me permission, I went through all the ethical processes, they gave me permission to um, contact everybody who had been in a reunion 
or had met up over the last oh, 20 years or so. Because what I wanted to do was not just ask how it went, because um, there's a lot of kind of honeymoon period goes on in the first couple of weeks, month after a, a, a reunion takes place. I wanted to find out, you know, once things are settled down, uh, and I called it 10 years after, right? There's a band that played at Woodstock, by the way, right? But, uh, you know, that's for the oldies amongst us. But anyway, I called it 10, I called it 10 years after. Because really what I wanted to do is go and ask these people that were involved in reunions and say, look, how's things panned out, right? Are you just like liking each other on social media now? Or, or are you in, 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 in each other's kitchens, right, day in, day out? Now, I know that's tough when you're miles, 100 miles apart, but these are the kind of, you know, the, the, the extremes I wanted to know about. And things just dwindled. And, um, or, or, you know, were you in each other's life? And how did you feel about, you know, the, your adoptive family, you know? Did you embrace two families now? Was it just one big kin network <laughs> um, or, or not? So um, at the end of the day, I actually got about, um, about uh, 60 or so people responded to me. Now, unfortunately, I did not get um, 60 pairs. So I, I, I couldn't ask the two people, right, how was it for you? And then try and do some comparisons. So what I basically got was more or less um, 60 individual accounts of what people had thought uh, uh, were the, um, the long-term outcomes of, of their, um, uh, their um, adoptions meetings. And in some cases, Reunion's probably the wrong word because it was sisters met brothers. So they were never really together in that sense. But it was a kind of a meetup, which is a sort of narrow word for a huge experience. But um, let's call it reunion for the sakes of. So, um, but I did get uh, mothers uh, and fathers, very few fathers, of course, um, about a lot of adopted people. So most of them, um, uh, I think probably a, a, a slight majority of adopted people come back to me and told me what their experiences were. And they were varied. There are there are some reports of some good work done in um, New Zealand about um, outcomes. But they kind of looked at ones over a year and it went as far as 20 years. I kind of stopped mine to at least 10 years old as a reunion. And um, so uh, that gave me quite a lot of perspective. And lo and behold, lo and behold, Joe, they were doing fine. In most cases, some had been kind of like, they're dead to me. That kind of saw like yeah. extreme. But frankly, this was one guy I was, I'm quoting here, you know, fell out big time with his sisters. God knows what that was about. And so one shouldn't take that kind of like, um, you know, headline um, to be um, indicative of everybody. It's quite the opposite. Most of them were uh, settled down to, um, yeah, they were, they were kind of like, as I said earlier, there was, um, you know, Facebook likes, um, letters and Christmas uh, uh, and Christmas cards and birthday cards. Um, well, I would say that um, the majority of the 60 or, or so people I spoke to who reported after 10 years of the reunion, the majority of them, A, felt better. Um, and this is important, of course, right? They felt, you know, um, what's the word, um, enriched by the very fact that, um, A, they'd had a meeting, they'd had a reunion with somebody that was, you know, either the mother or father or close to them or close to them, you know, genetically. And they felt this so much better for that. Not just that, they were enriched by the fact that they did they did pop into their kitchens, right? Uh, this is fabulous. Um, you know, and they've gone through, um, you know, all the ups and downs you'd expect once you start to have families join. Um, did you get invited to the wedding? 
uh, would ask them, you know. Um, some said, yeah. Some said, too complex, because if I was at the wedding, I'd become the centre of attention and not the bride or the groom. You know, so there's all sorts of things to be kind of ironed out there. You know, the grandparents became, and as other children arrived, you know, you go to the christenings or you go to um, the, the baby showers, all of these things, if you're close by, become real kind of questions to be kind of negotiated, particularly if you're adopted, as you, you know, as you, you probably know, um, the kind of tightrope that you can walk, the kind of walking on eggshells about who, who might get offended if they don't get invited to the wedding and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of that stuff, kind of life course stuff began to sort of like, it became into, it became into view like one of these developing a, a photograph in a developing tree. You could see, you know, things would stand out uh, and there are common things stand out about uh, deaths, uh, you know, and, and what what children would say? Well, who's Gary? Um, you know what, what you know who, who what's his relationship to me? I've already got two granddads. You know this this kind of you know so kids would ask questions, direct questions as they do. So these 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 kind of like outcomes um, were kind of heartening in a way. It's probably the word I would use, and they um uh, and they were quite common. I would say yeah, quite common for the numbers of the um, people that uh, I spoke to, that they were pleased, they'd been enriched by it, and also, where it was possible, there was phone calls. There weren't phone calls every day. As we know, these honeymoon periods do subside a bit, but there were calls, um, visits when people could visit, and in some cases, yeah, um, a mum and a kind of daughter that she'd relinquished 40 years previously were in and out of each other's kitchens because they were happened to live close by. Yeah, yeah. And um, that sort of mirrors everything that I've sort of heard about reunions from different people over the years too, in, including my own. And it's interesting that you say you um, talk to people after the 10-year mark because just before we started recording, we were talking about my own experience and how um, it's been 10 years now since I first met my father. So, um, and I think that is kind of a settling period, isn't it? Like that 10 years, you've kind of got an idea of what the landscape's looking like in the future yeah 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 but like they say you know sorry if i interrupt you there joe but i mean like they say adoptions for life yes. i mean the, a meeting is, is never over it's often the beginning of something and i could have gone back 20 years later maybe somebody will one day um or ask somebody when they're just about about to peg it and say look <laughs> looking back over your life how was it for you right yeah and each time each time you ask them it'll be different but it does it does kind of settle down um, you know, to a kind of, you know, how do these relative strangers get on with each other, you know? Yeah. Um, and what what I've kind of, I've been thinking about is that it does help. It does help. And so, some of it's obviously genetic. It does help if you have interests in common, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it does help a lot, you know? And you, sometimes you'll find that um, uh, an adopted woman gone into, I don't know, care, a caregiver and their mum it was or is a nurse or so on so there's kind of like crossovers between mm. um like music tastes i don't know you know um it does help and i've seen this in, in the research if there's um a point of kind of common interest that's not just blood yeah but i do think that the blood connection does travel a long way you know there's something special and magical i know i'm getting very biological i don't mean to something kind of special about um 
seeing your face or your features and somebody else's features and picking that out. It's yeah. it's incomparable. I mean, uh, and it's often quite hard to bottle that. Yeah. If I could, I'd make a fortune. I know, and I'd help you sell it. Gary this next question is really close to my heart Um, you published an article with the title language is never neutral and this article focuses on how language has the power in the context of adoption with a particular focus on the current widespread practice in the UK for children to be adopted from the care system can you please tell us some more about this idea of language having power I've just been looking at um, uh, the word contact very recently. Yesterday, I've been writing something. I hate it. I think the word contact is a short, hard word for um, either the the continuation of a relationship between a parent and a child that's in care uh, or the maintenance of a child. So, uh, but social services have come to use the contact, the word contact as a verb, or they're doing contact or or they're in contact with each other. And I think that... um, I, I hate it. Uh, I think that, that I spoke to a number of parents. Uh, we did a survey, I should say, and I analysed the survey results and the, none of them used the word. Well, they do sometimes because they have to talk to social services, you know, so you've got to use these words. Right? Can I have contact today or when, when's the next contact? And, you know, there's a, it's turned on and off like a tap sometimes if parents must behave. Anyway, contact, I hate. The other words um, that mean a lot, uh, I mean, what do we mean by the word placement? You know, mm. it's used all the time in social services, you know, or we're looking for a placement for this child. When, OK, you might need three or four more words for that. But, you know, is this an alternative home for a while? Is it the so-called forever family? I think forever family is a weird phrase because these children have families. Their original birth families aren't deleted or replaced or obliterated. You know, they remain in the child's head uh, and often in life, of course. But forever families, I can't, I can't stand. Um, and um, don't get me going here, Joe. Right. <laughs> Carry on. Like, words matter to me. I've, I've seen, <laughs> I, I've seen, I hate things like tummy mummy. It's what I used oh. in my, my article. And, uh, you know. I'm going to get I my do, fingernails I, out of my leg. <laughs> right. I do, I do feel, I do feel for a, a, adoptive parents having to struggle to, you know, to, um, you know, particularly a five-year-old who's been in care and maybe shunted around in foster care for four or five years uh, mm. between any number of foster parents and, and then having to sort of try to make a relationship and explain to the child. But back in the day, when I was a six-week-old six week baby and come the day when they had to explain, well, well I'm not your kind of, your, um, your biological mother, uh, you know, your tummy mummy is over there and I'm the mummy who <laughs> kind of looks after you. So it's a really awkward phraseology. Um, but I thought that... Um, um, particularly the social services uh, ones, like a, a placement I fix on. I made a list of them. I've forgotten half of them, but um, you know things like, uh, as I say, um, forever family always strikes me as a bit, a bit of a strange phrase because um, it kind of it, it sells a myth to the child that actually um, they've had one family, that's over, it's history, mm-hmm. and um, you know this is built into adoption legislation in the UK because adoption legislation remains um, tied to the phrase that you will raise a child as if born, mm. as if born to you. Now, that phrase is um, at the heart of adoption legislation. And frankly, um, I think that, you know, well, 
I don't know, it's a 70 year old experiment, I think, sort of like closed adoption um, and um, the secrecy of adoption, um, you know, is, um, is, is becoming increasingly threadbare in my view. So raising a child as if born to you is a bit of a lie, I think. And I think that, you know, all amount of open adoptions and all the rest of it may make inroads into that. But there is, remains, I think, in the social services, kind of notion that, okay, we've rescued this child, we'll stick it in foster care for four or five years, and then it'll get adopted, and then they'll have a new, a new kind of sunny uplands of a new family life. But we, we know that often those children will seek out their birth families when they're 17 or 18, or earlier than that on Facebook. Mm. I, there's other kind of phrases I refer to, as I said, um, the word contact, and I, I don't like the word placement. I don't know what they would say. I don't know what the, the, the you know, the, um, the the replacement for the word placement is, but I, I hate phrases like, this child has come up for adoption. Mm. I, I don't know if, if you're familiar with the language of social services, that's what's used. And okay, social workers, you know, use shortcuts. The language can be sometimes, um, you know, short and sweet, but what does it mean a child's come up for adoption um, or, or a placement's come up or a bed's available? I mean, those are the phrases that happen all the time in social services. And what do they do? They commodify these children. These children become, you know, moving about commodities or parcels, packages. And we know that adopted people, you know, that, um, you know, back in the day when you're adopted, it felt like you were handed over to somebody else. You know, immediately you become a, a, an object, a thing. No, I wondered if I was putting you to sleep there because sometimes the students in my lectures, right, uh, I see their kind of eyes start to drip. Not the yours, yours are dripping, Joe. My eyes were not sometimes dripping. If I go into some, <laughs> sometimes I go into major lecture mode, right? I have to check, I have to stop myself, right? pull myself up short and go, is everybody on board here? <laughs> so anyway, that, I think that, you know, that there's that kind of contemporary adoptions, I, I, I think, are, are incredibly problematic. Um, yeah. You know, and there's there's moves around to um, reduce them. And in Europe, it doesn't happen. Um, they really happen. There's other moves are made. Some of them, you know, um, you know, are progressive. Others, you know, children remain in care. But um, you know, there's other ways of doing this. There's other ways of caring for children who can't be immediately cared for at that moment. You know, okay, I get the rescue part sometimes, but you know, has that always been the case? Has these parents always got to be the bad guys? I don't know. Um, yeah. But I do think that language about, you know, a placement's come up, a, a child's come up for adoption. My God, it just makes my stomach turn. Um, Gary, another important aspect of your work has been to look at good practice with adults in adoption. So what can you tell us about good practice principles for those who work in this area, assisting mothers and fathers who have lost children to adoption, adopted people and other family members? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was looking, I, I watched this program last night. We have something called Long Lost Family. Mm-hmm. You can get it on BBC. IPlayer. I've watched it. Um, yeah. Oh, no, sorry. It's STV. It's uh, Scottish television or ITV, whatever it's called. Independent yeah. television. And, you know, um, I was struck by that, you know, this mother had put a letter on her child's file um, in the hope that he would get it. And um, I am I am I remain worried about the lack of um, attention to simple information given by social services about post adoption about after adoption services like Jigsaw, like Birthlink in Scotland, where 
There are contact registers that allow people to actually put down a marker. Um, yep, we're both mutually up for a meeting. Contact registers are under underused. Um, they're um, under publicised. I think that social services, um, you know, in the case of this woman uh, I watched on television last night, when she put her letter down um, on the file, there should be, you know, she should be told about a contact register, and he. Um, he should have been informed about it. Um, they should have gone looking for him, but anyway, they didn't. I think good practice, um, good practice, I think, is is is, is looking out for, because um, GPs, mental health nurses, um, the caring professions really build into their consciousness the possibility they might be talking to somebody who's adopted or a birth mother or a birth father. They really build that in. So they see people. And who are going through depression, uh, troubles, um, drug abuse, and nobody ever asks some of these these um, older men, um, did you have? Is there a child in your life that you have no longer contact with? Now it may not be exactly that child's adopted, but I'll bet um, a pound to a penny that you know some of the people who are in trouble, who are depressed and upset, um, are, do have adoption in their lives. That adoptions put its mark on them, um, in in a way, like I say, about that kind of the long reach of relinquishment. Um, and nobody's done any studies on all the homeless people. Um, and I'll bet, well, we do know that many of them have been in care, but um, that all the homeless people, um, uh, uh, you know, has, nobody's ever sat them down if you could and said, look, is there a kind of a loss of a child in your life, or you know, are you adopted? Um, so I think that there's a kind of you know, it's kind of like in the Sherlock Holmes thing, the dog that didn't bark. It's what we're not asking um, in, in the professions. As for when you meet somebody and sit down and somebody comes and, and is open about being adoption, then there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. And I think that um, I would say this, Joe, um, they don't raise the father. Uh, and it may be that sometimes they need to put the father and um, what they think about the father, that's a man or a woman, on the table. If you're an adopted person, male or female, um, I think usually what happens is you're looking for mother first, or you want to think about and talk about mum first, or mother first, and um, I don't think father features very much, and I think they ought to. In terms of good, other good practice, well, there are obviously two categories here. I don't, for me, adoptive people come to this differently. People think that reunions are just like two more or less um, um, similar forces coming together. I don't think they are, Joe. I think that adoptive people have questions about why was I given up for adoption? Um, who do I look like? What runs in my family? Um, you know, give me the explanation. Give me the story of my adoption. Now, <clears throat> that's a huge agenda and an impetus. It's not the same for birth parents. I think that for birth parents, uh, mothers and fathers, um, the the reason that they would like to me, the top reason is curiosity. The underneath reason is to assuage guilt, to sort of like somehow engage with, you know, the pain um, of loss and having relinquished a child and the mark that's made on identity. And do you know what? I don't think reunions do, I don't think they take that away. I don't think, and, and, that, and you sometimes, and I get that from my study of 10 years afterwards when we spoke to some of the birth parents have been involved, they were still upset. 
their pain of having given up the child hadn't been removed with the reunion. I think they thought it could be, and it would be, oh, this will make me feel fine if they've turned it all right, their adoptions have worked fine for them, I'll feel better. I don't think so. I think that, I think relinquishing hurts, and it continues to hurt um, for decades, and in fact, all your life. And no amount of meeting, I'm, I'm afraid to say, um, um, I think the scar tissue forms, right, and can be helped to form with a meeting, but I think the scar remains. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you're talking about, um, you know, counsellors and doctors and stuff. I spoke to um, Linnell Long from the Intercountry um, Adoptee Voices uh, group oh, yeah. in our last episode, or actually a couple of episodes ago, and they released at the end of August a um, film that's um, it's a series of short films um, where they ask questions about um, the adoption to different intercountry adoptees and they answer them just beautifully. And it's um, a series that's for teachers, counsellors and doctors, just a short thing so that they can quickly get in there and have a listen to these. And then it might be on their radar to, um, you know, refer them or to ask questions at the very least, start a conversation about it. Um, and so it'd be really interesting for you to have a look at it as well. I can email yeah. you the link. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that just to get the conversation going. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure. So moving away from past adoption practice into the area of current adoptions, which can be hard for some of us um, who are impacted by adoption to think about, what can you tell us about your research and how has it helped to inform current practice in the hopes of doing things better in the future? Well, okay, no, we've touched on this already, but um, yeah. current adoptions, um, this goes back to the position of fathers and social services, not just fathers and adoption, but fathers and social services who tend to be a kind of afterthought. Um, most of the material that's collected at the beginning, when somebody phones through a reference to the social services about a child in distress or, you know, there's been some child protection issue, um, what gets taken down is all the mother's details. Nobody, the kind of like the person on the other end of the phone um, doesn't ask, well, give me the father's details. So what happens is that um, files get opened just a mother's name in it and the kind of the material builds up um, family histories are taken um, and then somewhere along the line if you're lucky a student will come along might work with a file and say um, okay is there a father around and the, and the and the system goes oh well yeah we better ask about him and then you know it's a bit late sometimes he, he kind of like absents himself right I mean or or, um, or is absented um, and so um Often when it, when it comes to um, the fact of adoption um, or a kind of adoptions about to take place or um, it's on the brink of that, um, it's often very difficult to find the father because the, 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 the tradition um, of um, case making and case compiling hasn't included them. But, um, so I would say that, um, that um, adoptions today um, need to have a kind of father's story because often like it or not, the story of the adoption is a mother's story. And, you know, that's her experiences and, you know, they have to be valued for what they are. Um, there are more than one story involved very often. Uh, it might not be a, a, a kind of um, a pleasant one. It might not be a kind of war and peace in terms of sort of like a huge um, document. But nevertheless, I think there's not enough effort goes into um, um, establishing the views of the father, um, you know, Often when you when when cases are built for adoption, Joe, um, they're built on the basis of these parents are the worst ever, they're the cruelest since Cruella, uh, and all the rest of this stuff. You know, so 
invariably uh, the social workers want an adoption to be approved against the um, consent of parents or a parent, then they have to build the most horrible case possible. Um, and um, so when you look at files, contemporary files on adoption, um, you just you never see anything about the mum's colour of her hair, what film she liked, whether um, she liked a curry or not. Um, and there's much, much, much less about about the father in it. So the um, come as I, I think we say this at the end of our article on um, similarities and differences that in 30 years time, when these children who have grown up come to access their files, um, well, they get the same, you know, kind of one sided picture um, and also a very negative picture. Um, well, they get the one-sided and negative pictures that exist in adoption files today. We hope not. But actually, um, I've looked at files on adoptions from 40 years ago, and you've got phrases like, you know, been around the block a few times, oh, knocked about a bit, you know, um, shabby dress, you know. Um, and you get this kind of, um, you know, um, you know this, this language um, that's detrimental and derogatory. And I wonder if not, um, if we don't do anything about it, that the same thing will happen 30 years from now when those files are accessed and people read them. Well, they still get the, um, you know, the kind of the picture that's painted in order to sort of facilitate the adoption, which is, yeah. it has to be, you know, because of the system. That So we, we get no sense of it. So I don't think fathers are um, included in those pictures and it's time that they, they were. Um, and um, as for that, that's probably all I've got to say about contemporary adoptions. I um I don't think there's um, um a huge future in um and I, I hope that they dwindle, frankly. Yeah, I do. Before we finish up, Gary, um, I recently read this sentence on the internet, and I'm not going to attribute it because I think it was tweaked a little from the original philosopher, but um, it said, "Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it." Past adoption practices can teach us a lot about how we can do better in the future and not just in relation to current adoption practices, but also other issues that are becoming more prevalent, such as donor conception practices and surrogacy. There are a large number of people now who are being conceived in this way, and we're now starting to hear from them about their lifelong impacts. Do you have any final thoughts on these lessons and what we can share with those impacted, as well as professionals and policymakers working in this space? If, if everyone could oh see God. Gary right now, um, his head was in his hands. It's like too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I just think like you got another hour because yeah. I, I just I wrote something. I wrote something a year ago on this um, about what the, the differences were. You know, it's horrifying to sort of like hear that, um, and and if not half the cases of um, um, children donor conceived children, the parents haven't told them. It's horrifying to hear that. Yeah. And that when they're asked, when these parents are asked, will you tell them? They say, oh yeah, yeah, sure we will. But I say, we find out that were they told? They weren't. And that donor-conceived parents, you know, live lives with fingers crossed behind their backs, hoping that child won't go into ancestry.com or uh, 23andMe or do a kind of DNA, whatever, right? Whenever, when, when, when they're of age to do that. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I think that um, there's uh, the, the world of openness has not actually impinged on donor conception yet. And um, 
Uh, it's particularly the case with sperm donation, um, and and there's kind of like huge practices around the world whereby um, basically deception is perpetuated. It's just carried on, and um, I think with no respect for the child at all. I think that we're we're back in a kind of mode that um, this process is for childless couples, and that was the case in adoption back in the day. And I think we've grown up out of that now. Uh, and we now realise um, that th things are radically different from that. But I think that in terms of donor conception and all the other stuff that goes on around that, um, um, uh, my last word is that I don't think that, uh, I think they're, they're back in the sort of Stone Age when it comes to openness and, yeah. and, and actually respect for a child's origins. Yeah, great points. Right, it's time to call this to a close, unfortunately. Um, we're going to be putting a link to Gary's book, Birth Fathers and Their Adoption Experiences, which I highly recommend. I just read it over the last couple of days. And um, we'll be putting up some relevant references for some of his research as well on our podcast episode notes page on the Jigsaw Queensland website. So be sure to check them out. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your research and your personal story in the previous episode. It took me 20 years after meeting my mother to get to the stage where I felt safe and confident enough to reach out to my father. And the catalyst for doing that was just one thing that somebody said to me in a support group one day. And I'm hoping that this episode might be food for thought for somebody else who's thinking about their father as well or anyone who's affected by adoption. So thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure, actually. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. I've loved revisiting my work and also talking about it. Um, thank you. You're welcome. And a big thanks to Jane who did the research and questions for this episode. But meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form there. And note that a dot perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Adoption.